Church for Kids, it's time for you. If you want to go, uh, Pastor Stevens back there uh, waiting. And uh, for everybody else, if you weren't here uh, Christmas Eve, you really missed a blessing. Pastor Stephen um, took charge of that whole service, and it was great. And we had from over here to over there full. It was a ton of folks that came. And uh, I really appreciated having that. And then happy Christmas to everyone. Now that I tell you all Mary means drunk in England, I hate saying Merry Christmas. But anyway, uh, Merry Christmas to you too, uh, uh, in our way of saying it. You can be open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We come to the last woman in the genealogy of Jesus that we find in Matthew 1. And, uh, and, and as I prepared for this sermon, um, I realized that our understanding of Bathsheba is pretty limited. And, um, and that you got to dig a little bit, and then you have to infer a lot to kind of understand who she is. The Bible gives us enough detail um, that we can know some things about her, but not enough that we know everything about her. Uh, but, uh, but we're going to look at that a little bit today. Uh, Christmas Eve night, when Pastor Stephen stood up to speak, he said he was going to try to deliver the shortest Baptist sermon ever. And... I would say that's not possible for me, but I am going to shoot for a personal best, okay? Uh, so don't, don't be afraid. But after this, we're going home. So uh, if we go a little bit over, I'm sure you'll be, you'll be fine. Um, also, next Sunday, before we dig into this, I want to let you know, uh, January, every week, we're going to be covering a different topic. Uh, we're going to start off with fasting. Uh, we're going to talk about faith. We're going to talk about the family. And then we're going to... Uh, ended up by talking about prayer. And then on Sunday night at 5 o'clock, we'll have a longer time together to teach about that and to ask questions and interact about it. So if you've never fasted or you're curious about it or you don't care, come back next week and, uh, and you'll learn a little bit about it. It is a spiritual discipline that uh, we ignore uh, much, much too often. And, but in 2 Samuel, um, before, I, before I go to 2 Samuel 11, uh, let me just turn over to Matthew 1. I, I had a lot of scriptures to mark, so I didn't put a marker here. I only had four to use. Um, but in Matthew 1 is where we get the genealogy of, of Christ. And in Matthew 1 and verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 6, we come to Bathsheba. And this is what it says about her because it doesn't name her by name. Now, I want you to catch that. Uh, there in verse 6, uh, it starts off with David's father and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, they were married by the time Solomon was born. But I think it's, it's interesting. I think that might be a hint to something that is not the main point, but just a point that uh, the Holy Spirit wanted us to, to understand. And then it goes on, and then Solomon... And so we have this genealogy um, of Christ through Joseph in Matthew 1. Over in Luke is the genealogy through Mary, and that also becomes important in today's. I'll just tell you what it is when we get there. Uh, but here's what I want you to take home with you today. And that is that God always has a plan. When we look at Bathsheba, there's so much contradiction within the story itself and our concept of God that it's really kind of hard from up here to preach uh, a, a sermon about it. I would rather sit down 
with just one or two or five of you in a small room and let's talk about it together individually because it takes somewhat of explanation. Uh, and frankly, I'm not sure I could explain it anyway. I, I, I don't think I can explain much of Scripture very well. We are all just trying to understand the best we can. But, but, this, but Bathsheba is a turning point. She is a pivot point in the genealogy of Christ. And so it's okay that it came this week. I also like it because a lot of preachers are scrambling, what do you preach after Christmas and before New Year? And uh, I kind of had it written out for me in the scripture, so I, I did good. Um, in fact, let me, let me just say something about saying Christmas today. I read an article over Christmas time, uh, not written by a Baptist, but written by a religious person who asked this question. He said, ask anybody this. Do the 12 days of Christmas come before or after Christmas? The answer is it comes after. That, that we have made Christmas a one-day commercial festival <laughs> instead of celebrating Christ for a couple of weeks. And, and I, I read that with the spirit of, wow, I need to really be thinking about Jesus, as Pastor Bobby said, all the time. But at this time of year, it just started yesterday. supposed to keep going for several more, uh, for, for a little bit longer. And in fact, in many European countries, Christmas is uh, first week of January, January 6th. So uh, just let you know that. But I want to look at Bathsheba. God always has a plan. So in 2 Samuel 11, which I asked you to turn to, I hope you got your finger there. Um, let me read the first five verses. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how your word guides us into all truth, uh, that, that what we see here uh, testifies of you, Lord Jesus, that this is one story, not many stories. Every story in Scripture points to you. And this time of year, we think about you at the time of your birth, but Lord, we we make a mistake when we stop there, for you came to redeem us. But Lord, we do celebrate it. You celebrate The angels celebrated it um, and, and announced it because it was good news for us all. So Lord, may we cling to that good news. May today you open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word. Give us clarity of thought as we study one of your grandmothers, Bathsheba, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want you to see is this is what most of us know about Bathsheba. That's why I read these verses. These five verses. And from that, we just get that David did something he wasn't supposed to do. And she did something. And we don't know whether she wanted to or not. And then it resulted in a baby being born that we all know ultimately that baby died. Um, and and uh, there's a whole big long story about that later on in the, in the word. But, but that's about all we know. And, and in reality, we really don't know how to think about Bathsheba. I mean, when they got her to come up there to the king, did she go, great, now's my chance? Did she feel violated? 
was it horrible, a horrible thing? Was it a willing thing? We don't know because the Bible doesn't say. So any conjecture I make, I'll be clear to say that this is just conjecture. It's what I'm thinking. It may or may not be so. But there are some hints in this text right here. And the first thing I want you to understand, because from this we can start reaching out and finding things, is that Bathsheba came from a godly line. There's, her heritage is very godly. And let me just show you, because she's identified in this verse, verse 3, as the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Well, those two men alone give us a godliness in her life, uh, in her lifespan, in her life uh, line. Because her grandfather, Eliam's father, is Ahithophel. And try to say that uh, and not sound like you're sneezing. Um, but he was David's most trusted advisor. Now, we, we're not going to look there. But you can see that in 2 Samuel 15, uh, uh, verse 12. And then in verse 30, 34, it lets us know some more things. And in another place, says his most trusted advisor was Ahithophel, the father of Eliam. So this grandfather of Bathsheba is David's most trusted advisor. Now, later on, David's other son Absalom rebels. Y'all remember that? Everybody with me there? Because we're not reading those scriptures. Y'all remember about that? That there was this big rebellion that was Absalom. You may only know it in general, but that's cool. That's fine. Well, Ahithophel had been David's best and favorite advisor. And Ahithophel goes with Absalom in rebellion against David. Now, I, I, I remember reading that one time and going, what's wrong with this guy? He was like this trusted advisor. Why would he do that? Did you hear what I said? This is Bathsheba's grandfather. Her dad is Eliam. Well, great. You know, a name I'm never going to name my child. Or Ithophel. What does that mean? He's one of David's mighty men. Now, you say, I, I've never heard that. I remember the first time I heard about David's mighty men. I was like, what is that? And then I found out about it and I got real excited because I was a young guy, a, you know, a little boy kind of thing, a teenage boy. And we like all that kind of swashbuckling stuff. But David's mighty men were 37 men that, I don't know how else to put it, but they are the most elite warriors in Israel. They, their, their deeds are legendary. You can find the whole list and some of the things they did. Um, three of them just heard David say, boy, I wish I could get a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem. So three guys fight through an army, get the water, fight back through the army, and hand it to David. That's just how they were. One guy killed hundreds of people. One guy was fighting a giant, took the spear out of his hand, killed him. These are mighty, mighty men. And they were with David when he was running from Saul. These are guys that gathered around David because he was a warrior himself. And these mighty warriors wanted to be with him. And they came to his cause and they were his men. These are the guys he fought every battle with. He, he slept out as he was running from Samuel when they were lost out in the wilderness. They went to Philistine cities, lived with him. These guys had been with him his whole life. And one of them's daughter, David sees from a rooftop. Let, let me go back through that scripture we read and just point out a couple of facts to let you understand what happens here. Because I didn't until I, I kind of I studied a little bit more. Spring of the year, time kings go out, David doesn't go, we know that. And in fact, there was a point in time when David went to a battle and they insisted that he not go with them anymore. 
It's called mission-specific disabled. It's, David, you're just, you're going to get us killed now. You can't pull your load because you've got to be able to protect the guy next to you next to you as well as take care of your business as well. And once you link up all these men that have that attitude to take care of the guy next to them as well as take care of their business, now you've got an almost unbeatable force because they're working together. So are you telling me that David runs around with these 37 guys for years and now decades and he don't know that's one of his men's daughters? He looks from the rooftop, and it's not a written law in the law of Moses, but they have found secular records that a man in Jerusalem could not look down from his rooftop at night into anyone else's house. Now, you think about that. At nighttime, in the daytime, you couldn't see into somebody's house. It was going to be darker in there than it is outside, but at night, you can see clearly. David is committing a sin not by walking around this is not haphazard he goes over and intentionally looks knowing he's breaking the law of of the city he lives in and he's the king so i guess he felt a little privileged again that's conjecture i don't know why he did it did he know that's where she lived to me in my mind the bible doesn't say possibly her dad is one of his mighty men oh that's where Iliam lives and that's where uriah lives and that he could name all of them and know where they lived these are his best friends. It's kind of weird to say he had 37 best friends, but these guys would die for him and fought battles that they should have died but won. These guys are, well, we would say bad to the bone. I don't know how to spiritualize that. So they are, they are the mightiest warriors. And David commits this gross sin. Well, her granddaddy didn't like it later and rebelled against David the king. But I just want you to understand that Bathsheba kind of knew what the score was. She married another of David's mighty men, Uriah. And notice it says Uriah the Hittite. She's married to a godly man. It says so in that verse. This man is a Hittite. I didn't think about what that meant until I was getting ready for this. Again, we've read these stories all the time. We never go out of this verse to understand Bathsheba. I'm getting there. Don't, Don't lose hope. But But she's married to this Uriah the Hittite. What does that mean? The Hittites were the third most powerful uh, nation or group of people in that time. The only people stronger than them were the Egyptians and the Assyrians. And the Hittites went to war with both of them and still were not annihilated. These are some mighty, mighty, mighty peoples called the Hittites. Uriah is one of them, and for him to be in David's mighty men, one thing almost absolutely has to be true. He forsook all the gods that he knew about and chose Yahweh as his God. He wants to be totally sold out to the God of Israel, and he fights for that God alongside its king as one of its best warriors. And the Bible just said Bathsheba is a beautiful woman and maybe Uriah joins up and he's single and Eliam and they're running around together. Yeah, Hey, you know, when you going to settle down, Uriah? Well, when I find the right girl, well, you notice my daughter? Well, yeah, everybody's noticed your daughter. Well, I wouldn't care. If it, I'd be proud if you'd marry her. You know, the daddies arranged the marriages back then, right? 
So probably Eliam made an agreement with Uriah. You can marry Bathsheba. You are a great guy. I don't care that you're not native-born Jewish, but you've come and you fought with us, and you're a brother to me. You get in the picture now? This isn't just David's like, whoa, who's that? Hey, someone find out who that is. He knew who she was. Come on. Now, flip that over. Does Bathsheba know what's happening? She grew up in the household of a mighty man and the advisor to the king. Her granddaddy and daddy. She don't know where David lives and what he does and his habits. And when she goes to him, does she not know what's about to happen? Probably. But the Bible doesn't say anything about her motives. Have you noticed that? I told you to remember in Matthew it says the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's your hint. She did know his motives. Okay? That, to me, that's a hint to, we're not going to give her her name place here, but we will mention her because she is extremely important. But here's what, ultimately, I said God always has a plan. Ultimately, what I want you to also get out of this is that Bathsheba, no matter how she got there, when she got there, she turned around and served God and her king faithfully to the end. Whether, this event probably woke her up to, what did I, just, what did I do? What, what have I committed? And it seems like there, there is eventually some kind of repentance because of what she, did, uh, what she begins to do. Well, I, I mentioned about Uriah being godly. Let me just say one more word about that. You remember when David tried to cover up this sin, and notice in verse 5, she sends him word, I am pregnant. I think that also comes back to her position in this situation because she doesn't cry out, scream, what am I going to do? Whatever. She sends word back. Hey, Dave, guess what? What we did has resulted in a baby. And I don't know how you're going to get out of this. But, you know, I could claim a lot of stuff. You know, she, she doesn't do it that way. She's just like, I got a baby. You know, you didn't know this. She lets him know. So what was David's plan? Just to kind of put that aside, uh, the whole story aside, so I can go to the better points. So David calls Uriah back from the war. And under pretense to tell me all about the war. Well, David had regular couriers come. He's not going to pull one of his best warriors off the, off the line to come back and tell him stuff. He does that to get Uriah home so that what soldier who's been in the field for months doesn't want to go home to his wife for that one night that he's got. I'll tell you who, Uriah, because he didn't want to break the law of God and the law of David. Because Uriah, the next morning, goes, David sees him, man, didn't you go home? No, sir. Not while the army's out there fighting. Why should I take pleasure myself when my brothers are in the battle? Exactly what David did. You don't think that was convicting words? David, let's say he was incapable of going that year. But he took unlawful pleasure for himself while his men were putting their life on the line for him. You just don't do that. That is betrayal of the highest sort. So David goes, well, let's try another thing. And so he keeps him there an extra night, gets him drunk, and tries it again. But Uriah said, I won't go home while the men are out there in the field. No way. So David said, I only got one option. I got to kill him. Now, how do you get to the place where you want to kill your best friend because you messed up? It's a bad deal. I mean, this is the blackest mark on David's whole life right here. But that's what he does. He signs the instructions to kill him. He writes them out, signs them, hands them to Uriah and says, hand that to Joab. He'll, he'll know what to do. 
Uriah never reads it, never looks at it, gives it to Joab. Joab opens it and says, put Uriah at the front of the fight and then get everybody else to take a step back. And it worked and Uriah died. Now David's guilty of two things and you know what happens. The prophet of God comes to him, tells him a story about a man who had all the lambs in the world, but he stole his neighbor's one pet lamb to offer to feed his visitors. And David, being a shepherd, Nathan looks at him and says, what do you think ought to be done to a man that would do that? He said, that man ought to die. And Nathan said, well, it's you. You're the man. And David realized and he repents. We have Psalm 53, where David fully repents of this sin. But I want to look at Bathsheba just a little bit more to get to where we need to be. Because I said it, now I want to repeat it. She became a very faithful wife to David. When we look over in 1 Chronicles 3 and verse 5, we see that she bore five sons. We've already said the first one uh, didn't live to adulthood, died as a, as a child. But these were born to David in Jerusalem, Shemiah and Shobab. I hope I said those right. I don't know how you pronounce Hebrew back then. Nathan and Solomon. Sidelight, I told you we'd get there. The genealogy in Luke is for Mary, and Nathan is her great-grandfather. Solomon is David's. Bathsheba gave birth to the two sons that would be in the line of Christ, coming from the king, David. You with me? Now, the, the, the problem I really have issue is, this is God's plan. We've been talking about how God protected this genealogy all along, and we come to Bathsheba, and we don't know that she was a willing partner. But it seems that she didn't resist so much. And yet she is chosen by God to give birth to the next king and to the descendant that would make Mary a straight line from David. Now, that's a problem I have, and I can't solve it, and neither can you. But God always has a plan, right? I told you, don't forget that. She bore five sons, four lived to adulthood, but she also made sure that Solomon would be the king. If you look in 1 Kings, uh, Chronicles and Kings are similar uh, books. Uh, Kings comes before Chronicles. They give us a little bit different information. But in 1 Kings and chapter 1 and verses 15 to 37, when David got really old, now he's got a ton of sons. Who is going to be the king? God obviously wanted Solomon to be the king. Somewhere along the line, Bathsheba, let me ask you a question, just, just so I see if you think like I think, and I think you may, uh, in this instance at least. Does it seem to you that some of the um, more well-off men in the Old Testament didn't pay a whole lot of attention to all the wives they had? They sort of like married them, you know, did whatever they do then, and then kind of you go to live in that room and somebody will take care of you and they're on to the next thing. And they're not real super involved in their life or their kid's life. Would you agree with that? Yeah. But it seems like Bathsheba, man, she, I ain't going in that room. You married me, dude. I got something over your head. We're going to stay right here. <laughs> and it's what it seems like because she is, she's by his side from this point on. She's right there the whole time with David. And when in 1 Kings in chapter 1 and verse 15, when David is old, he's about to die, one of his sons declares himself king. One of his advisors, a priest, takes him and 
parades him, behold the king, celebrate, and everybody thinks, oh, this is David's son that's going to be the king. And Bathsheba hears about it in verse uh, 15. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. And Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. And the king said, what do you desire? And she said, my lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, by Yahweh your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He, he's still the pres- I mean, king, and he doesn't even know what's happening. And then she says in verse 19, he sacrificed oxen, fatted cattle, sheep in abundance, and invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, has not been invited. This is telling us something by omission. This guy knew it's supposed to be Solomon. He's trying to take control before Solomon can get it. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them, who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Otherwise, it'll come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. She makes sure Solomon becomes king. She sticks with David. She engineers it to make sure. By the way, two of Nathan's sons become Solomon's heads of the priests and the armies sort of thing. Or his, he, they command it two of Solomon's greatest things and it calls one of those sons of Nathan his best friend so Solomon's brother's kids he puts them in high positions and while she was still speaking with the king Nathan the prophet came in they told the king here's Nathan the prophet came in before the king bowed before the king with his face to the ground and Nathan said my lord the king have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne for he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen fatted cattle, sheep in abundance, and invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they're eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he's not invited, has this thing been brought about by my lord the king? And have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? And so Nathan, I mean the priest Nathan, and, and, uh, and Bathsheba make sure that Solomon becomes king. And then I've already said it, but I want to make a point about this. Bathsheba becomes mother to the two ancestors, Joseph and Mary. She, they beca- she gives birth to the two ancestors of Joseph and Mary. And Nathan was the third son that was born to them. Solomon's the baby out of five boys. I never thought about that until I studying for this. Nathan is next to the baby. The two older ones didn't do much that we know of. But Solomon is this youngest son. And so we have this woman very possibly almost intentionally messed up along with King David. And yet God uses that to ensure Christ. Now we talked about this a little bit last week and weeks past that you think that when you've messed up so bad God can't use you. But we say it, but these stories we've been telling pointed out that God has to use broken and imperfect people. He has no other choice. We're all broken and imperfect. We all need Christ. 
And when we come to Christ, he can make something out of our life, right? And I think that is the greater story of Bathsheba. I've told you some facts about her kind of to flesh out who she is. And you can go back and look up some of that stuff I was talking about. But, but here's a woman, whether intentionally or not, whether willingly or not, whether she knew what she was doing when she went to take the bath or not, she finds herself a widow by murder and married to the guy that killed her husband after he cheated with her. And she makes the most out of that. She says, okay, this is where we are. Let's, let's stick with it and serve God from now on. And it seems like David is more involved in her kid's life. David's more involved with her than when any of these other wives he ever had. And, and so we get this sense that, that Bathsheba, though she is imperfect, is important. And I want you to hear that for yourself. That it doesn't matter how you got where you are. It doesn't matter if you're up high or down low. We, we did recap this week. And Pastor Andy comes up with the questions. And they're always great questions. Make me think harder than I've thought before about the things that we've already thought about. And uh, this past week he asked me, what would you want the church to leave behind 2021 going into 2022? And I knew what he was asking. But what I said was everything. Because Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting everything's behind, I press forward for the mark of the prize of high calling in Christ Jesus. See, we have not yet got there. We've not yet achieved the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ. When Jesus comes back, he is our reward. And so our striving is toward Christ. Our striving is to know him, to look like him, to be like him. David messes up. Bathsheba messes up. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. The Bible puts Bathsheba and lets us remember her by calling her the wife of Uriah, but lets us remember her that out of her, don't forget, Nathan is Mary's great-grandfather and Solomon is Joseph's and Joseph would have been the king and Mary would have been his queen and if they, they still had kings and queens when Jesus was coming around. But Jesus is born king, right? He is the rightful heir of the throne of Israel, but he is the heir of the throne of heaven as well and he paid the price to have that title king of kings and lord of lords and by the way you can't be king of kings and lord of lords if they're not other kings and lords that's an empty title if there's no opposition trust me in the spiritual world there's opposition against God that's why Ephesians 6 says we don't battle against flesh and blood we battle against spiritual forces principalities powers rules of darkness in high places. We need to be in spiritual battle, and that's why we're going to talk about prayer. At the end of the month, we're talking about fasting at the first of the month and sandwiching some good stuff in between because we need to be involved in a spiritual battle. I, you know, I, I read the news. I probably read it too much because nothing in the news has ever pushed me toward Christ, really, except to go, ah, that's awful. i got to get to Christ, Okay. And, and we read that and we read about people doing this and then the protesters and, and the church even gets caught up in protesting this issue or that issue or doing this or that. And some of those, we ought to be protesting. We ought to make our voice heard. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But what I'm saying is our warfare is on our knees. The battle is won on our knees. When we read in the scripture about the saints of God, Old Testament, New Testament, and they didn't get to live in a country like we live in. 
But when they were in trouble, when I, right now and I'm finishing up reading the Bible for the year, and right now I'm reading in Nehemiah and, and Ezra, and all these people are coming against them, and they're just praying about it and keep doing what they're supposed to do. They don't form a protest group or go fight anybody. They just pray and work, pray and work, pray and work. And that's what we need to be doing. We, we need to go out there occasionally and give them a good shot, you know. If you got to go out there and do that, make it a good shot. Hit them hard. But what we're supposed to be doing is praying and serving the king. Amen? And however Bathsheba got there, she goes to praying and serving the king. And she takes care of King David for the rest of his life and, and hires people to help her where she couldn't help him anymore. And her son becomes the king and her descendants become Mary and Joseph. And so, in conclusion, usually I have three things you can do this week. This is kind of a big year-ending kind of deal, okay? Here's what I would tell you today. You can put up the last thing if it's up there. I'm going to read something a little bit longer than that. We couldn't put everything I wanted to say on one slide, so here it goes. From eternity past, God guarded and guided the lineage of Jesus for him to be born to a specific place at a specific time to specific people. He did the same for you. He did the same for you. You're not an accident. You're not a coincidence. You're here on purpose. So what will you do with that in 2022? Knowing that God designed you to be who you are, where you are, living with the people you are and the place you are, doing the things you're doing. Or maybe he wants you to do something differently. Maybe he wants you to do what you're doing differently or maybe he wants you to do something different altogether. He may want some of you to be a missionary. He may want some of you to be a pastor. He may want some of you to be a teacher or a singer in the choir or Someone who greets people at the door or welcomes our guests and makes them feel at home or helps in the, in, in, in the child care or helps in, in the church for kids or helps with our, our students or helps with our young adults or our older adults. Maybe God wants you to do something different than you're doing or do what you're doing differently. And Bathsheba began to do things a little bit differently after she got to a place where, how did I get here? You see, it's not important how you got there. It's important what you do next. Right? I heard a preacher when I was a teenager, and he preached a sermon entitled One-Legged Christians. And I still remember the point. I don't remember a whole lot he said, but I remember the point. Christians take one step at a time. We always want to know what's coming on in five years or ten years or twenty years. People go to satanic uh, uh, slaves to... I have their fortune told. What's going to happen? Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to? Well, guess what? God's already, God already knows that. You don't need to go to them. You just need to talk to him. But he's going to tell you where to put your foot next. He's not, why are we going this way? Well, you see when we get to the end of the road, but take this next step. And then take this next step. And take this next step. And we ought to be one-legged Christians. In 2022, that's what we ought to do. Well, I say, okay, next I'm going to do this. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And that which I ought to do, I will do for the glory of God. Right? So next week, we're going to talk about one thing you can do is fast. <laughs> and that'll help you, and it will serve the kingdom as well. We'll talk about that. So I want to know, what would...
Calvary look like if we all decided, you know what, I'm going to forget failure and success of the past. It molds us, it shapes us, it gets us to where we are. But now that I'm here, what am I going to do with that going forward? What am I going to take into the future? And if all of Calvary did that, oh my goodness. I mean, next week we couldn't hold all the people. But we, get, we need to be ready to disciple them, teach them about how, what it means to be a Christian. And that's some of what I want to do in January. That's just little, I mean, it, it, we could study any of those subjects for a year. There's as, as plenty of stuff to know about it. But what will you do? What will you do today? Because in some ways we're all like Bathsheba. We may not have done the same thing, but eh, I shouldn't do that, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Uh-oh, I got caught. Now what? <laughs> Ugh, that's a scary spot. Admit it. Confess it. Repent of it. Take a step out of it and get going. And man, if we all did that, whoo, that'd be awesome. It'd be wonderful. We would start telling people, and they'd say, well, you don't, uh, you think you're so holy. No, I know I'm not holy because I tell you what, this is what I did. I really messed up. Or they'll say uh, uh, something like, oh, I can't, God can't do anything with me. I'm such a bad sinner. Really? I'm a bad sinner too, but God saved me. He's making me look like Jesus now. And he's helped me get better and better every day. Don't you want to know him? Because he can do the same for you. We let our own excuses stop us too, don't we? Talking about what other people say to you, but some of you said that to yourself in your own head. What will you do in 2022? Because God has a specific plan. He's, he, however you got here, God had his hand on it. And he wants to redeem it for his glory and the sake of his kingdom. And that's what we learned from Bathsheba. She had a love eventually for God, for her husband, that created some kids that became the ancestors of Christ. Lord God, we don't know what you would do with us if we truly surrendered ourselves, if we truly forgot all the failures and successes of the past. We didn't keep harking back to, boy, those were good old days. I wish we were back there. Or we don't go back and say, man, I really messed up and I don't know what I'm going to do next. Lord, you know what we need to do next. You are our guide. You are our shield. You said your word is a lamp into our feet. It shines right where we're about to put our foot. But you're also a light to our path. You illuminate the way we're going, but you also illuminate specifically where our foot is coming down. And so, Lord, we ask for that illumination. We know from whence it comes. It comes from the person of the Holy Spirit as we open the written word of God and see what you tell us in the word. And the Spirit helps us understand it and places it in our heart and our life and our mind to exercise our will to do. We get that. <clears throat> but Lord, we have little pity parties and big pity parties and we think we're not good enough. Well, we're not. We think we're unredeemable, but we're not. You, you saved us. We're not good enough, but you make us good enough. We can't do it, but you can do it through us. And Lord, we've, we've used excuses too long now. And so, Lord, deliver me from excuses. I ask you to deliver the people from excuses. Last week, I asked you to do something if you were here. And I want to ask you to do something similar today. And that is... If in 2022, 
You say, I, I want to know what Christ wants of me, and I want to do what Christ wants of me. I just want to just stand up. We're going to pray. You don't have to stand up. Nobody's looking around. I'm not going to look around. I don't know who's standing, who's not. This is between you and God. I'm just getting you to do something physical so it'll mean a little bit more. You'll remember it a little bit better. You're standing up today saying, starting right now, tomorrow, I'm going to seek God's will and do it. And the day after, I'm going to do the same thing. The day after, I'm going to do the same thing. God may give you a, an idea of where you're headed. And that's fine. But, but no matter if you know where you're headed, you're not going to take off running there. You're going to get there the way God wants to get you there by taking a step at the time. And so, Lord, I, I come to you. I don't know who's standing, who's not. Lord, you know the ones who stood that should be sitting and the ones who are sitting that should stand up. You know our thoughts from afar before we even think them. You know us intimately. You're well acquainted with all of our works. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You said in Scripture, David said. And Lord, you take messed up, broken people that really have messed up and you can redeem it to give us the king eternal so that Jesus you could come and be born so that you could be the prince of peace and you could be the king of kings you could be the lord of lords you could be the all authority all powerful one and you could pour the Holy Spirit out on your chosen people the church, that we would be the army that marches into enemy territory and begins to take it back. But Lord, we'd be foolish to march into that territory without prayer, without repentance, without seeking your face. So Lord, help us this year to take the next step. And then after that, to take the next step. And to take the next step. And so Lord, we ask in the name of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ, by his authority, Father, we ask that you would lead us, guide us, give us grace for the journey, show us the way. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would pour the Holy Spirit out on us. We know you've already done that. We just use those terms. We, we want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. We want to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you live with us. We, we hinder you by trying to do things our own way. May we let go and let you take control so that what we do is within your will. Give us grace today. Give us grace for today. You told us in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about tomorrow. It's going to have enough evil in itself. Worry about right now. And so we're going to worry about that. We know you're coming. We just don't know when. So we don't have to worry about that. You're going to get here when you're going to get here. And we will rejoice when you do. And in the meantime, Lord, no matter what happens in our world, our society, our country, our state, our neighborhood, or next door, we will serve the King. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I hope you had a happy Christmas. And have a happy new year as well.